us now, Dr. Juan Cabanella. It is our final installment of Space Talk. It was Pick Your Programming on KFGO. You guys got to pick what you wanted to hear about, and you all voted space to be the number one thing you wanted us to talk about. Since we can't talk about it, we found you experts to do so. Dr. Cabanella joined us for the first one, and now he's joining us for the last one. Dr. Cabanella, welcome back to KFGO Radio. Hey, how's it going? So we wanted to chat about whether or not there is life in outer space or on other planets, since that seems to be one of the top topics when this comes up. And we've managed three episodes without talking about it, but you actually teach a class about this? Yeah, I teach a class at MSUM. Usually every other year, it's called Life and Death in the Universe. And we talk about these kind of issues. And what do you talk about in terms of these kind of issues? Okay, well, so there's a whole field of research called astrobiology, which tries to understand essentially what are the requirements for things to live? Do we understand that? And then where in, where in the universe can, can those conditions be achieved? And so it, it's obviously it's kind of um, one of the big problems in the field is what they call the N equals one problem. That is, we only have one example of a location in the universe where things are living, and that's Earth. Uh, so it, we don't have other places yet, uh, but there is a lot of work going into this to try to understand sort of what are the limits of life. I mean, um, we have found in the last few years, for example, I don't know if you're aware, there are things that live four and five miles deep in, in, the, raw, in the ground. They live down there, uh, little microscopic things. Uh, they're single-celled, and they live purely on chemical energy. They don't, do not depend on the sun at all for anything. They're not, the sun is not part of their food chain. In fact, I mean, I don't know if you call eating rocks food, but they, they, they chemically work with the rocks. And then there's things that live in geysers now that we've discovered that can withstand much higher temperatures than we can. So there's a lot of work going on to sort of figure out what are the limits of life. Okay, so let me ask this question then. I think we hear a lot of the search for intelligent life out there. So we're mm-hmm. not talking about that microscopic uh, life when we're discussing intelligent, but we are looking for any signs, correct? Well, think about how intelligent life came to be on Earth. Assuming you call humans intelligent, um, <laughs> then okay, good point. We're, the result, we're the result of four billion years of evolution. So the conditions had to be there for those really simple forms of life first. And then it had actually one of the big problems is how long can a planet maintain those conditions? You know, the planet's going to change over time, and Earth certainly did. But how long can it can it sort of maintain those conditions for life? And so that's a lot of the problem is if you're searching for intelligent life, you, you, the first question is, where might you expect to see it? So we start looking around certain kinds of stars that will be very stable for long periods of time. We search for planets that are in what they call the habitable zone, where they can stay there and have the right conditions for a long period of time. Um, and then that's where you start going, well, how would we communicate with these aliens? And that's where you get things like the SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and trying to pick up signals from space. Um, there's, it, like I said, this is a very wide field that covers a lot of different topics. So to stay on that topic right there, we did get a question in a 35270 and said, if we start receiving a signal from space that we know is intelligent, what are the realistic chances that civilization still exists today? Um, 
depends on from how far away that signal is. So uh, radio signals travel at the speed of light, so one light year per year. So if the signal is from a star 50 light years away, there might well be a good chance that they're still around if it's only 50 years ago that they sent the signal. Um, the, uh, the, you know, if it comes from 2,000 light years away, you, you know, you start running into, well, how long does a human civilization last? 2,000 years? Well, we were around 2,000 years. How, you know, a lot of it, one of the key questions in astrobiology is how long can a civilization last? Because when you get to the point where you're as uh, dominant as humans are, will start affecting the planet and not necessarily in ways that are conducive for life. And I'm not just talking about things like climate change. I'm talking about things like um, the development. It's funny. By the time you develop the technology to communicate across interstellar distances with radio, it's the same physics that's involved in developing nuclear weapons. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what are the odds that another civilization that might be less stable than we are for whatever reason or just more aggressive um, decide, you know, they maybe they engage in a nuclear exchange, and that that that's what wipes out the civilization. So, you know, what the the odds of are they still out there will depend on how far, from how how far away the signal is. And right now, the thing is that we can't easily detect signals on them unless they're from pretty close in space. I mean, within a couple hundred light years is probably the farthest out we can get signals of a comparable civilization to us if they're intending to communicate with us. I'm also curious about this. So I think that we look at a lot of uh, things in outer space. It certainly makes the the news, uh, the news cycle, where what could sustain our lives on another planet, right? So, oh, finding Mm -hmm. water, H2O, on Mars is a sign that we can sustain human life on Mars. But clearly we're looking for we're looking for things that survive in different ways like you said uh the the microscopic creatures that are beneath you know the earth is far farther than we've ever dug is allowing us to find out like oh yeah nothing not everything needs to breathe air not everything needs to adhere to what standards we have for life on earth Mm -hmm. so i'm i guess i'm like how do we know that something is not life does that make does that make sense? Like, like if you, we were to take samples from uh, from the moon, how do we know mm-hmm. that this is not something that has life when maybe it at one point did? So, like a hu- if we find a human bone on Earth, we can be like, oh, this was once part of a living creature. How do we know that it's not part of another living creature? And I might be way oh. in the weeds on this one. Oh, you're a little in the weeds, but it's actually, okay, so we spend a whole week in that life and death class talking about what is life, because believe it or not, there isn't an absolute hard and fast definition of what life is yet. Um, There are certain things we think are necessary. You mentioned water. Uh, We think that life needs to be able to reproduce and needs to be able to interact with its environment. There's a whole list of things that we think life requires. Um, But you also mentioned, like, fossilized life or life that's, you know, not not there anymore, but was living, that gets even harder because if it is very different than life was on Earth, we might not recognize it. And since it won't be interacting with its environment like a living organism would be, like respirating or reproducing, you know, grabbing some material from the environment to reproduce, you know, we might not be able to detect it. Um, the funny thing is, though, there are... Um, you guys are aware that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid 65 million years ago? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, during that impact, it's entirely likely that at least some dinosaur bones were um, launched into orbit, and a few of them probably landed on the moon. 
So what? there may be fossils. Yeah, there may be fossils on the moon that have nothing to do with anything that evolved there. Oh man, could you? That's <laughs> could crazy. you imagine? Could you imagine if the world is watching like Neil Armstrong take a step on the moon and he stops and then he pulls up a giant, you know, femur? <laughs> like we would have lost it. The, okay, so. That is interesting to me. So, you know, let's talk about, uh, you know, 20,000 light years from now where one of these bones may just be hurtling through space, hurtling through space, and eventually mm-hmm. lands on another planet. If there is intelligent life there, they might think, well, Earth is home to a bunch of giant lizard creatures that may or may not have had feathers, depending on who you listen to for paleontology. Yeah, and they and they would be sorely misinformed. Um, the, the interesting thing is also that... Um, one of the big questions, where life arose in the solar system, Mars early on may have had better conditions for life than Earth did. Earth may have been a little too hot. So some people have argued that life might have actually arisen on Mars, and then an asteroid impact could have knocked bacteria like inside of a rock all the way to Earth. And then those bacteria essentially colonized Earth. So, you know, another thing you can think about is what are the odds? I think they're small, but what are the odds that we're essentially all Martians? This is what? blowing my mind. Now I want to take your class. Is yeah, that possible too. to just come and sit in the back? Yeah, we'll audit. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you'll have to talk to the administrators about whether they allow auditing, uh, but I don't know that the class will be taught again in the next year or two. I can certainly let you know, Amy and JJ, when oh, it comes up. sad. Good stuff. Dr. Juan Cabanella is from MSUM, Minnesota State University, Moorhead, right over the river from us. And uh, we really appreciate you being a part of this space talk that we've had going on this has been the the listeners pick a programming someone said has george nori taken over 11 to 2 <laughs> don't worry <laughs> we talked about that yesterday too when we were speaking about this if we colonized mars after a couple generations would we be able to visit each other someone said in our text club um well that's a good question certainly the people growing up on mars would have to work hard to build up their muscle tone because if you grow up with much less gravity we know that um, going back to earth uh would be very difficult mm-hmm. uh there's actually uh i know the astronauts uh, on the international space station have a treadmill i forget what the acronym is but they named the treadmill after stephen colbert so it's the, the something something some the colbert tro- treadmill <laughs> but uh, they use they use this treadmill to keep their muscle mass up because if you go up there for twelve months and then come down, you literally cannot walk. Sure, because your muscle mass is you know um, as I unfortunately discovered recently, um, if you sprain a muscle or do something and you don't use it for even just a week, it is very painful to start developing the use of that muscle again. Yeah, and I can only imagine what it's like for astronauts and. If you think about, you know, someone grows up on Mars with a third or a little less, I think it's close to half Earth gravity, you're not going to be used to having your body have a weight of 200 pounds. You think it's 100 pounds. So you're used to holding up only 100 pounds. You try to stand on the Earth and you'll just fall down. Right. Interesting point. Dr. Juan Cabanella, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your time. Thanks for making this space talk happen for us. No problem. This is It Takes Two, Amy Eiler, J.J. Gordon here on the Mighty 790 KFG.